0: Rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome back to episode two with David Cassidy here in his office in Franklin, Tennessee. Welcome, David. Hey, Bob. Good to see you this morning. Yeah, we we're had double so much dipping. Yeah, we're double <laughs> dipping. We had so much fun on the That's first right, episode that I said we mentioned the second one and we've gotten good response from the first one and there was so much I wanted to cover about you uh, and ask you that after we stopped, I said I forgot to ask this, I forgot to ask <laughs> that. So here we are again. So if you haven't listened to episode one, please go back and check it out. We talked about your life, your upbringing, um, spending time in England, how you – different churches you pastored, and how you ended up here in Franklin, D.C. Right. Yeah. So we got a lot of that out of the way. But what we didn't talk about was the many sides, the faceted diamond that is <laughs> David Cassidy. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, – I know, and I'm going to throw out a few things and then you're probably going to add a few, but I know that you are an amazing artist. I know you like to draw. I've seen your art. It's beautiful. Um, I know you like to cook. I do. And I know you love sports. Yeah. Soccer. Baseball. Yeah. Um, I know you're a huge baseball fan. is it true if I have it have I covered
1: anything is there any <laughs> other secret hobbies that no. you excel at no, no, I think those are probably the the big hobbies especially uh yeah cooking and cooking and sports and then sketching a bit on the side just Okay for fun. so l- well let's start start with the sketching where did that come from uh, Well I, you know I just, when I was a little kid I was always drawing I I was fascinated by that and I I did some uh, oil painting lessons and things like that back when I was You know, nine, 10, that sort of thing. Um, and I I wasn't particularly good at painting, but I was okay with a pencil. Mm. And then in high school did some more work went down to an art institute in Indianapolis. Used to drive down there on weekends and, and, uh, do some sketching. It's one of those things though. And I had a a great sadness really is something I gave up for years. I just, uh, How long did you give it up? My gosh, you know, like 30 years. I just never um, could make time for it. And I, that's just a terrible admission, but because life was very busy and it, and it it's not something you can um, well, at least I can't sit down and go, oh, "Well, I'll just spend a couple of seconds here on this sort of thing," you know. So, to me, I I see people who will keep little sketchbooks and they make little sketches as they go along that kind mm. of thing. I'm not that I'm just not wired up that way. I have to go, oh, well, i got to sit down and work at this. And so some, how long some take, of my perfectionist tendencies come out. How long does it take to you to do a sketch?
0: Is. I've seen photos of that you've sketched from like C.S. Lewis and yeah. Tolkien and others. And it's amazing. It looks like a photograph, the, the detail. I know you're probably copying a photo when you do it.
1: Yeah, I draw. I, well, yeah, I mostly draw from photos mm-hmm. uh, rather than live work, mm-hmm. uh, because of the amount of time for me, it takes, I, I'm, I admire tremendously folks who can do live, I did some in the past, but for me, I've just, it's almost therapeutic to sit down and <laughs> say, okay, for the next several hours, I'm doing this, I suppose all, all in, it's probably, you know, 10, 12 hours on a, on a sketch, maybe over. So you uh, find that relaxing? Yeah. Yeah. I find it real relaxing, very satisfying. Uh, to To get to the end of something and look at it and go, oh, well, that was, that's that, that's pretty good. And <laughs> that sort of creative aspect of things, you know, that it, it turned out all right. Anything besides
0: drawing, ever do painting or anything like
1: that? I uh, did some oils early on. I've done a little bit of watercolor, uh, but not that much. Really it's, that, that to me feels not quite as relaxing. Mm-hmm. That feels more demanding. Mm-hmm. As it, it requires more, right? It right. also costs a lot. Better. Yeah, so you just pick up some pencils and some paper. You're ready it's to not expensive. Yeah. It's a very. It's it's
0: better than golf. That's great. <laughs> have have any of your works been published in
1: anything, or is it just kind of st- no for your f- no fun for your- It's just for fun. Yeah. It's just for fun. I did not. I, I put up last year, uh, the, the, like the Lewis picture, just saying, "Hey, this was fun," you know, and then a bunch of people wanted it. And so I ended up selling several prints of mm-hmm. that, but yeah, that's it. So very interesting. Yeah. But I, I like drawing sort of heroic f- people that to me are somewhat heroic figures, and so I'll I end up drawing them. That's and Hollywood, great. Hollywood figures. I like actors. Really? Yeah, I like actors and movies. How and, many
0: have you done? Oh,
1: probably six or seven of okay. the Hollywood folks. No, but total. Oh gosh, I don't know, maybe twenty. Like I said, it's it's a pretty recent, pretty recent deal. That's great. I, I, uh, and I tend to do it in winter months. Yeah, when you have the time indoors <laughs> that's and right. not that's, I'm just stuck inside, you know. So.
0: And if, is there a place if someone wanted to take a look at them, or is it just you throw them up on your blog from time to time? Yeah, they'll end up there. Okay. that's. I, I don't have anything just out there. Okay, and they can go to ChristCommunity.org and then get to your blog from yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. or PastorDavidCassidy.com. PastorDavidCassidy.com. If yeah. you want to read his blog and or see some artwork, yeah, that's up there. it's up there occasionally.
1: Okay, and in recipes and okay, well, don't, complaining ju- don't about ahead. Complaining about sports teams and all of that, you know. <laughs> all right, let's get to. I cooking. gripe about that too. Cooking is that cooking. your that's your other love. It's really probably, Yeah, that's my main. That's my main hobby is really being in the kitchen. So, do you all the cooking at home? I do. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I do, and I love cooking. I love everything about it. I think it's deeply theological. I call that my of all my cookbooks. I call that my practical theology section. Okay. So, well, let's dive into that. Yeah. Why do you see that? Well, experience? I think the whole Bible is a is a is a feast, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's com- it, it, God's word itself is compared to bread that we eat. If you go into a history of bread, even it's it's very deeply uh, theological. But but the Bible itself opens with feasting. It assumes we're hungry people, so we have these people in the garden. God says, "Hey, see everything. You can eat all of this." Mm. So the very first thing that is acknowledged about us is that we're hungry mm-hmm. and we're omnivores. So here's everything, you know, right, right. Just don't eat this. Right. But of course, what do we do? We go to the wrong restaurant. Right. <laughs> so okay. we, we, eat the, exactly what we weren't right. supposed to eat. And so we fall mm-hmm. into uh, deep, deep sorrow and perdition through an act of eating. It's no shock then that it is through acts of eating and drinking that we are brought back. Mm. So, uh, uh, Exodus uh, comes through a Passover feast. Gather your family around the table, eat this feast. God is acting, and then Israel goes free. And they, uh, as they worship God, uh, he feeds them in the wilderness as they're going through the wilderness. Right. But even for their whole future, their, their whole year is marked out by various feasts. Mm. Get to Esther. Uh, they're rescued by feasting. The whole story is built actually around five mm-hmm. particular feasts. And then if you fast forward into the New Testament, God establishes the new covenant with us through a meal. Mm-hmm. All right. Bread, and wine, the, sort of, the, the, the Passover revisited and uh, reinterpreted and given to the church as God continues to meet with us in this mysterious mm. meal. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And when he's born, he's laid in a food trough. So, from the very first moments of his existence, he's identified with food and grows up to say, I'm the bread that comes yeah, down out good. of heaven. And history ends, of course, where it begins. Uh, you know, it ends with this Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper. Of the Lamb so we're back to feasting Jesus said blessed are those will sit down in the at the table with Abraham in the in the kingdom so we could yeah you can go for a long time on this kind of thing it's a lot of fun so I think there is something about when we eat and we share, of sharing life together with other people. That's why we say, hey, well, let's meet for a cup of coffee or let's Mm -hmm. "Let's meet for lunch or something. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because we understand that in eating together, there's a sharing of life together. Mm -hmm. It's just part of who we are. And then if you're involved in the production of food, you know, raising it up out of the ground and har- cultivating it, harvesting it, and then preparing it. We don't just, uh, though sadly, we, we we often do just kind of consume things. But if you actually uh, uh, present something to, to someone, you understand that people eat with their eyes first. Right. So it's not only has to be something which is nourishing, but it has to be beautiful. There's something about who we are as humans, which responds to beauty. Yes. And and is communal. When mm. we see it, we want to share it with other people. Mm-hmm. We want this to be a shared celebration. To me, one of the great proofs for the existence of God, one of the aspects of transcendence, is onions in butter and olive oil on the stove <laughs> and the aroma that arises from that. And when you smell that, you go, yeah. there is a God. Yeah, that's he made us with this many taste buds mm. and he made us to enjoy his creation and and we were destined for feasting. That's wonderful. What's we're, your favorite yeah. what's your favorite thing to cook? My favorite thing that I cook that other or people make. enjoy Eating is probably a beef Wellington, mm. uh, so and that's not that hard. But I, I probably enjoy making my own pasta most, and mm. and you know, get, Italian style food is get everybody around the table food. And while there's a lot of there's there's some important techniques involved in that. It's not as complex as French French cuisine, Which requires a great deal more. But I, I love every bit of it. If I if I I'll, I'll run into the kitchen and just bake stuff. Because, um, I have to.
0: And do you find that very relaxing as well? Oh yeah.
1: Needing bread. Mm. Yeah. That's pretty relaxing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm making a mess. My uh,
0: mother-in-law is a little 92 year old Italian woman and to this day. She is up at 4 AM cooking and it just yeah. brings her so much life and joy. Yeah. And it's kind of humorous because it's very stereotypical, you know. When you talk to her, the first thing she talks about is what she's making and yeah. how she wants to, you know. This is what she yeah. made for dinner last night, and right. but there's something um, very, like you said, beautiful and life giving in it. In that it's it's more than just a cultural thing for her for her family, for her parents, as she was sharing recently when we were down there, is that, um, it was just a part of who they were as human beings. And it's the way that they loved and served and community and family. And it, 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 like you said, I think there's something a lot deeper than just, Hey, let's have dinner
1: or lunch there. There's something a lot deeper than that. That's right. We want to eat together. Mm. It's why I do think the Eucharist is so central to co- mm. the community that's of uh, believers in, in worship. Worship culminates at the table. Mm. Not just in not just in a message given, but in a meal shared. Because that's where history's going. Mm. So we eat and drink together every Lord's day as God's family together. I, I find that to be A staggering thing that the Lord said, okay, I don't want you to ever forget that I died for your sins, Mm. and I want you to enter into the mystery of that sacrifice. I want you to encounter it. Let's see. How can we do that? Oh, I know. Let's eat and drink. That's good. Yeah. That's good. So so
0: fast food culture has uh, diminished that, you think, to some degree? Deeply.
1: (laughs) Deeply. I understand why it exists, and there's probably a time to even enjoy it. You know, everybody's going out for right. for some event, so you, know, you grab you grab the pizza or you grab mm-hmm. the burgers or whatever from the fast food. So I'm not denigrating it. Um, I think one of the most dangerous things is probably mass-produced food in giant farms, is, mm-hmm. is you know that are corporate rather than um, more family-based and personal. I think there's a, um, a dangerous use of chemicals and genetic engineering that's going on and the production of food is far more sinister in fact than a lot of you know sort of fast food stuff per se though there's a connection in those things obviously but um, I I think what what we're seeing is um, again families not getting around the table not connecting food connects Mm. people and so artwork, for instance, is something I can personally enjoy. I can go to a museum, I can walk around, I can look at a brilliant, uh, exhibit of say Van Gogh or whoever, and personally encounter that. I don't need to encounter that with, you know, four or five other people, but you know, eating alone, that feels depressing
2: mm.
1: more often than yeah. not. Right. But if we, if, so foods more about connecting with other people, there's something about that, that brings us together. So one of the aspects I think of a disintegrating family culture is the fact that we, we don't, we don't eat together as much mm. as families. Um, so I would, I, that's why I don't denigrate fast food. Not everybody has time to prepare. Sure, and of so course. some, so it'd be better to buy the pizza, get around the table right. together. Right. Sure. Yeah. yeah, Sure. But if you can get in and prepare it, yay. That's great. Okay. Baseball. Yeah. Baseball. Well, sports are a microcosm of our our lives. And we, we, when we watch something at that level, say professional, at a professional level, we're seeing an, an exhibit of excellence and beauty. Again, I keep coming back to beauty that for most of us who are watching it, we can't reproduce in ourselves, but we see a manifestation of the right. ideal. Right. Uh, you know, when you see a double play turned, mm-hmm. you know, six, four, three, double play turned, short to second to, mm-hmm. to first, and, and it's just a thing of beauty, or you see a, a, a brilliant spiral pass that goes from always, Yeah, I always yeah. love to watch the best of the best
0: in the field. Like, yeah. I don't always love sitting and watching professional basketball, but I will sit and watch Michael Jordan back in the day or I'll sit and watch LeBron James yes. or I'll watch Stephen Curry if he's on because yeah. I know I'm watching something, like you said, that's beautiful, that is excellent, um, and that's just head and shoulders it's above. Staggering. It's staggering. To it's staggering to watch. And so regardless of whether you appreciate or like to watch it regularly, for me, I will stop and watch those
1: people because you're like, wow, the other thing that happens in, and I think baseball, not football. I think it can be that way, especially we're living in, this is kind of, you know, SEC college football, you know, paranoia Mm. country. So sure, you know, all that, but, um, so people get a little wound up, but one of the things about it, I find is that it's passed generationally. Mm. So, so there is a kind of sports consciousness loyalty. That happens generationally, and it's one of the beautiful things in a family. So that if you take a, a dad, I've numerous occasions of this where you have a dad and a son, or a dad and a daughter, mother daughter, whatever. The relationships are strained; right. they can't talk to each other about virtually anything. But that that com, common yeah. denominator of well, how are how are how are you know our team you know what they did last night? Right? Or did you see right. that play? that still holds mm-hmm. them together. So there are some play, some families where music has that role. There might be other families where, uh, a different activity has it. In my family, when I was growing up, it was sports. So when I first got married, um, you know, the, my wife's family was offended that w- we would want to watch football on Thanksgiving, but they thought that was taking away from family. In fact, that's what my family did to bring us
2: yeah. together. Sure, And then we're
1: arguing about it. We're fighting about it because yeah. half of us were Packers fans and half of us were Bears fans. So then we're all yelling and screaming at each yeah, other. That's and great. it was fun. Sure, It was fun. It's fun. So it was part of what, what kept you together as mm-hmm. a family. So... What do you, you know? Somebody who's a big Tennessee volunteer fan usually passes that on to their mm-hmm. son or daughter. That kind of thing. It's a good argument for infant baptism, you know, Bob. I see, <laughs> I see, I see people. They dress their babies up in gear yeah. from Alabama or Auburn or whatever. And why do you do that? Well, I'm raising them right, you know. I'm like, well, that, so you're putting all the signs on them of their loyalty, but they didn't have any choice in that, did they? Yeah. No, they didn't. But so I'm like, yeah, but you're against baptizing them? Come on, yeah.
0: Yeah. that's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um
1: but favorite, my, I got I, I did see the my Cubs. I did. I was going to say I, favorite I got, moment in baseball history for you oh, was, yeah, 2016, November 2nd, 2016. And you were there. I was there, Game 7 in Cleveland when the when my my beloved Cubs finally won the World Series and all of their long suffering. Well, what was that what experience was, like for you? It was uh the, the single most joyful experience in life I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're supposed to say, you know, like, well, you know, next to meeting Jesus or getting married. Well, I don't know. know. So it was just like (laughs) euphoria. Yeah. Yeah. Were you crying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was crying. Yeah, I was crying, hugging hugging people I'd never meet again in life. You know, I was there with you know it was in Cleveland, so it you know it was a lot of Indians fans too. Right. God bless them all. I hope they win one too soon. And um, but I mean, I was there with probably there were probably 20, 25,000 Cubs fans in the stands that mm-hmm. night. And. uh so, yeah, you know, we were just going nuts and then wandering around the streets of Cleveland until three in the morning. So, I'm uh, wondering. Well, you know, you know, we were at a loss to know what to do at that point. We, we'd spent 108 years waiting. We weren't quite sure yeah. how to celebrate. Everybody else had to was to the that was the first, the, the,
0: the last time was 1908, was that correct?
1: 1908, yeah. They'd been back to the series uh, last time uh, before that, 1945 when they lost to the Tigers in the forty five World mm. Series. But been close, broke our hearts a couple of times since then, but finally in in sixteen, got the job done. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it was a brilliant, beautiful moment. Very thankful for that experience. And
0: you're you're a big uh, uh, British soccer fan?
1: Yeah, yeah. I love I love the Premier League. Yeah. You know, the Premier I've, League. I've, yeah I follow I follow Arsenal and anybody who knows will will kinda go poor guy. Uh, we've had great years right now, not a great time, but most of the people who are, most of the fans I meet over here are kind of like, they've, they've Man United and Manchester City and they get yeah. all the press. Yeah. My but, son is a big soccer fan and he's always loved Manchester United. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Interesting. Did, did you start becoming a, a bigger fan when you lived in England? Is yeah. that where you picked it up? Yeah. Um, I took a trip to, to Italy, probably, gosh, it's probably been 10 uh, no, I take that back. It was 12 years ago. And, um, we went to a, uh, professional soccer game there and it was uh, Florence Fiorentina versus okay. I forget other Italian. I did not realize, I mean, I knew mentally, but I'd never visibly witnessed it. The craziness of it's the a, rivalry there. Yeah. It's a little loony. Yeah. So we're sitting there in this, this big stadium in, in, in Italy in Florence, and so we go in, we sit down, and I look across, straight across. There's this section, maybe a quarter or half of the other side, and it's all plexiglassed in. Yeah. And I'm going, that's weird, I wonder what that is. Then I saw police usher start ushering people in there. I'm like, w- did they like bring people <laughs> over from the prison, or what is this? and then within about 5 minutes I'm like that's the other team's fans yeah. and they're there to protect they, them they have security security so <laughs> and this of course this is italy so emotions are running high but whenever <laughs> one team would score right the fans would run over pound on the, on the plexiglass, plexiglass yeah and just you know whatever yeah. like yeah, <laughs> make all kinds of gestures to yeah, each other yeah that's right and then after the game the they, they ushered out them first yeah. with the police, so they get, yeah. it's crazy. And that, that's,
1: and, and, yeah, <laughs> the things, passion, it's a crazy, it's wild. It does get a little wild. Um, it, the thing I loved about English football is that all the fans sing right. the entire game. Yes. So you, you know, and so every, you kind of get into that. So it's a singing culture. It's a little different than American sporting events yeah. in that regard, but in Britain, deeply tribal. There are hooligans, but typically the fans are a little better behaved now. They, they went through a really bad patch in the eighties where there were several deaths and stadium damage and, and they had to really reinvent how they did things and, and things are, generally speaking, calm.
0: Was listening to a, uh, a a podcast a couple of years back about the origin of American football and Mm -hmm. they were going back to soccer and they were saying, and tell me what you think about this from a sociological standpoint, they said that American football was bred out of, you know, some of the early, um, I guess rugby and others, but also into the Ivy, the Ivy league schools who started it in, in the late 1800s or so. Um, one of the reason was because up until that time. Uh, There was no place for young men to get out their aggression. There was no more wars anymore. You know, uh, several centuries leading up to that, you had, you would go out and kill your food. You would go fight in wars that were going on. You would have, and then all of a sudden you have, you know, America and revolutions over and now we're got these young men going to college and they had no place to do you think it speaks to some of that ah, some of that aggression i've not
1: heard that that's possible I, I i don't know but uh there there there's certainly that's certainly interesting psychological theory on why it might be necessary for some people to play yeah uh, I, I more than anything i think there's a, a again it's an aspect of of Competition and trying to excel, whatever the sport may be. Sure, but the violence issue—that's the thought. I hadn't. I hadn't. Yeah, I like had to ponder that. Like, there's no more
0: place for young men to be yeah. violent. Now, some would argue we don't need to be violent. Yeah, but
1: yeah. up into that time, there was always an outlet. Always an it. aspect of that to who we are. But the thing I love about sports again is just uh, that it's this microcosm. Mm-hmm. So we do fail. Sure. We fail. We failed miserably and badly. We feel like we let other people down. We have to have our teammates come and pick us up. Uh, we have folks we're cheering for. We want them to to do well. Um, sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And you have to learn to live with losses. And your victories are very rare, actually. To actually win everything is rare. Mm. And and so that that helps with 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 life at times. Yeah, yeah. that's great.
0: That's great. Well, thanks for all that. Okay. <laughs> One more uh, fun question for you. Last time you laughed so hard that you
1: couldn't stop. Oh, Funniest gosh. thing you ever- Oh, gosh. I don't know. I, 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 um, it it, it would have probably been something silly that I shouldn't have said and did. Uh, <laughs> so, so laughing at yourself. So now <laughs> you're laughing at myself because I did something so well, incredible. Let me, let me incredibly change, stupid. Let
0: me change the question. What do you find funny? Like, what is it, what is it, the
1: humor that you like? I love, yeah, I do laugh. Uh, I like, la- um, I do find life both tragic and hilarious at, at times. So anything of course has the potential to create laughter. Mm. I mean, we, we at times will weep over death and then at other times laugh about it. We'll even make, we'll make jokes about it. Uh, sort of dark humor, mm. you know, but, um, Do you like dark humor? Uh, at times. Sure. Uh, I am I have a twisted, you know, sure. sort of English version of humor. I grew up loving Monty Python. Yeah, know, and, absolutely. Uh, search for the Holy Grail. That's not a message to any parents to let your kids watch <laughs> it. I'm just saying. So, but I mean, I could start reciting Python sketches. Yeah, you know, sure. And, you know, begin with That's dead parrots stuff. and then with four Yorkshire.
0: You know, I, I was talking to someone recently and, and it's amazing how much Monty Python they influenced comedy and culture at yeah. so many different levels. Right. Because, you know, as you get, certainly you have to be old enough to remember and see and study of that, you know, but you look at so much of the comedians today, some of the sketches and yeah. you go, that's straight out of Monty Python. It's
1: straight. So British humor tended to be much more intellectual, uh, in its nature, much more based on wordplay. And and historical exaggerations. American comedy tends to be much more physical and slapstick, just different Mm -hmm. aspects of it, but of of things that make us laugh. Uh, Both of them appeal to the humiliation aspect of who Mm. we are as humans. Mm. So the thing about comedy is it makes us more deeply aware of our brokenness. Yes. And And a good comedian will do that. A good comedian will do that by being transparent about who he or she is in their worst moments. And that helps us feel more in touch with the, the reality of who we are. And we can laugh at ourselves more effect more, yeah and, and we're healthier. If, we can, right. if you can't laugh at yourself, you know, if all you can do is laugh at other people, then there's something deeply, deeply troubling. About
0: yeah. You. A good comedian will say and talk about things that all of
1: us known experience but we're too afraid to talk about too afraid about it. to talk about it. right so that that's one of the reasons why there can't be many boundaries on comedy uh, and why some people find many aspects of it offensive i get why they find it offensive but it helps us deal with with the r- sad realities of who we are it's also why many com- comedians are yes they they've wrestled with with terrible things like depression sure. and deep ways of course you know robin williams Sure. passing in just the last couple of years. Well, you could go through the line of, uh, of, of yeah. SNL fallouts. That's and, right. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good. So I, I end up laughing. I laugh at church a lot. <laughs> There's a lot to laugh at. Well, about. I mean, it just is. Unfortunately or fortunately. It just is. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, it's that or cry sometimes. You know, <laughs> I mean, we're just ridiculous at times. We just do dumb stuff. And and it's, and it's the church is so goofy at times it's almost, you see something in the Babylon Bee or the Onion or whatever, right, and right. you think, which are, you go, oh, that's parody, but it's almost hard to parody things anymore because the reality is so awful.
0: Well, especially where we find ourselves today in America. I mean, that's uh, that's almost straight out of the Babylon Bee or the Onion. <laughs> I, it really is at times. <laughs> and you read a headline, you're going, "That's what? got that's not true. It's not okay. true,
1: <laughs> but it is. <laughs> you gotta, so, you've got to laugh. You, you do at times. It's you laughing, have to, it's you crying. Have to laugh. God help us. You know, we're just idiots. So,
0: um, speaking of which, speaking of that, where we are today, um, let's go a little bit more, uh, in the deeper end, um, dualist, this idea of dualistic thinking of, of zero sum gains of us versus them that we find ourselves in. I, I feel like we I don't, I don't think any of us would disagree, I guess, depending on what side of the fence you're on, if you are in America or anywhere in, in the world, um, it seems like we may have taken a few steps back. Uh, everybody is angry. Every, you know, you get on social media, you watch the news, you watch what's going on in, in, in Washington, and you feel like everything is so has to be so black or white. Everything, we're going to put a stake in the ground, and if you're not... Republican, you're evil if you're not a Democrat, you, if you're a Democrat. But uh, I believe that life is so complex and there's so many complexities to deny those complexities in any given situation is not to really mm, admit or be in touch with what's real. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you reduce it down to just two answers. And I find what's compelling to me about Jesus and Christ is that he tried, they tried to suck him into that so many times. Yes. They said, Jesus, which one is it, this yeah. or that? And he's like, well, neither. And so he he refused to get sucked into that. It yeah. seemed to be a higher level of understanding less, well, yeah. of saying, no, guys, life is much more complicated than that. And there is a higher law. There's a different, it's a higher way of thinking. Uh, talk to me about that.
1: Well, starting with Jesus and working your way back, Jesus did not validate their categories with right. the answer. So more often than not, what he would try to do is introduce a whole new way of thinking by return by replying with a deeper question. Mm. We're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. You know, mm-hmm. or or answer this, and then we'll talk. Mm-hmm. And then they go, well, we don't know. And he goes, well, gosh, I don't know you an answer then. Mm-hmm. I think one of the great things about Jesus is he does not feel compelled to offer answers to every single question. Sometimes because we're asking the wrong questions, but he he blows all that up. There are binaries, sure, in in Scripture, which are important to know. There are black and whites. So. There are, and and so there there is the holy and the profane. Sure. There, so there are certain binaries where we go, okay, that's right. But the way in which you you flesh things out, and the way in which you interact with culture, um, is something which people do not uh, well. well they they approach it in overly simplistic ways, and then they become deeply tribal about the cultural approach and treat that or their their tribe within the culture their approach as the only valid possible alternative. <sighs> Travel is a cure for some of that. Mm, talk about that. Well, if you let's say you're you know an evangelical believer in the upper South, and and uh, maybe you're. You you would consider yourself politically conservative, say on economic policy, but and you're a you're a good Calvinist, you know, you hold to the Westminster Confession, and then you travel to Scotland, you know, and you meet somebody in Scotland who's an evangelical Christian who holds to the Westminster Confession, but is a member of the British Labour Party, mm-hmm. and uh, believes in a In democratic socialism and thinks capitalism is, is threatening to the life and health of the community. And suddenly you discover that, oh, no, wait a minute. My political conservatism, uh, and his political, uh, uh, democratic socialism, um, may not have a meeting place, but here we are both, uh, in theological agreement, but how can, how can that be? And, and if you learn that, for instance, then you suddenly realize, well, no, wait a minute. Um, back where I, I live, could I not have the same kinds of fellowship and agreement with people who see things differently than I do on economic policy
2: hmm.
1: or something like that? What would that look like? Well, to take take something like national health care, just, mm-hmm. just as a for instance. There are some people who would view uh, national health care, if it, if it existed, single payer health mm-hmm. system or something like that, as a, a terrible. Inroad that would happen in, in the country. You know, that's, that's just awful. Um, other, other people would say, well, that's just the greatest thing ever. Here's the real problem. The real problem is when people baptize either position and they go, well, if you're a Christian, if you're a real Christian then you would think this right. about the way national health care is supposed to work or mm-hmm. not exist. Or try to pull out a Bible verse to support it. That's right. So one of the problems with, with this, you know, this recently happened with Romans 13, you know, being subjection to the right. you know, governing authorities and so on. As long as it's your, your political party. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, there's that. And, and then while we would, we would note that there are, there are, see, constitutionally in the United States, where's the authority? Where is it? People. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when it says submit to the authority, uh, we are a, a post-enlightenment, post, um, well, what Francis Schaeffer pointed out years ago about and uh, Samuel Rutherford's work on this, from Rex Lex, the king is law, mm-hmm. to Lex Rex, the law is king, the movement to um, uh, submission to the law, obedience to the law, the, the king isn't over the law, the, the law is over the king, Um, uh, the, the rise of a written constitution, for instance, says that those who are in office have to be in submission to the constitution. Mm. And we as citizens elect and put these people Mm. in these positions of authority. So real authority rests with the people. So when somebody says, well, you've got to be in submission to the governing authority, you well is it the, is it the person in the office? Or is it the constitution itself? Or is it the authority of all of the the voters as they have exercised their right mm. to vote, and and that's an, all an interesting debate. But the point that I'm making is that to take Romans 13, which is written in the first century Roman Empire, <laughs> and lay it like some kind of uh, uh, a plastic over the 20 early 21st century, and say it's it's a quid pro quo, is a, is a deeply a deeply troubling way to handle scripture. Yeah. So how one interprets and applies those principles in the contemporary context is something that needs careful thought. It needs careful exegesis. And it does not work the same here and now. It doesn't work the same. The truth is the same. But the application of the truth is not the same here and now as it was there and then. Nor is it the same here and now as it is here and now in, in, uh, Botswana. Mm. So what I hear you
0: saying is kind of going back to your original comment is relationship and spending time with people who see and feel and live very differently from you is the cure for it's part of it. Part of it is seeing things. It's so if you are against a certain tribe or a certain stance or a certain political party, um, try spending time with some, how many people do you know in that political party? Right. When's the last time you went to lunch or had them for dinner? And, and listened. And listened. And just said, help me understand why you feel this right. way. Right. How'd uh, you get there? I, I find usually when, I'm, when I am uh, staunch and I believe my way is the only way, there's a good chance I haven't taken the time to spend the time or I have a friend or I have an acquaintance or I haven't had dinner. With someone who believes differently than yeah, me. That's right.
1: That's right. So I do think spending time with people uh, across... Traveling. Yeah, traveling is is will help a person with that. Living in a big metropolitan city. That can help people because you inevitably meet people in an urban environment who have come from a different kind of background. And typically urban environments have a much more open idea about uh, divergence, mm-hmm. um, and then, so, then then smaller communities—they're able to con- contain it mm. in ways that are uh, energizing and creative. So those that that can that can be there too. I'll, I'll suggest another thing: arts, mm. the arts, when whether it's the culinary arts or or visual art that you, you well, encounter yeah. or music, mm-hmm. music that, that, that we listen to. Because there's a transcendence about it. There is. So if you if you see a painting by someone that moves your sensibilities, the first thing that you're asking is, that, well, I wonder what their political views were. Right. You're, you go, well, I have a deep appreciation for what this person just offered me. I, I don't know what Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, political allegiances are, I mean, I really don't, and I don't really much care. I do really like Hamilton. Mm. Um, I thought he was pretty good, uh, in Mary Poppins returns. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I, I can, I can receive the gift that this man is bringing without asking those things and gain an appreciation of who he is. So don't we end up honoring and appreciating people just because of the gifts that they're bringing us? So, so we find then deeper common grounds Mm. that we have with each other. So art is another way. That's good.
0: And and I think what it's doing, whether it's art or film or anything else, is it's again, allowing us to see things through someone else's eyes. That's right. So when this person painted this painting, this picture, it's almost like he allowed you to see things through his eyes.
1: We see, wor- well, and This, this well. We, we read many books, T.S. Yes, Eliot said, to know we are not alone. Yes. And so we, we live in these libraries so that we have other people's eyes and other perspectives. But the other thing that happens is, is not only do we see the world through their eyes, but we understand that we have much in common. Mm, that's good. We have much in common. That we're not alone. Yeah. We are not alone. We have much in common. We have these shared human experiences of romance and heartbreak and fear And, and, and dealing with other people's sins and dealing with our own sins. And we all live east of Eden in Steinbeck's Mm. words, and we're all looking to get home. And when you encounter that in literature, or you encounter it in great music, you encounter it on the stage, you realize commonality. Mm -hmm. We basically all want the same thing. uh, We want to get home. Yeah, sure. We want to get home. In baseball, you want to get home.
0: (laughs) 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 That's good. That's good. Well, okay. So while we're on this topic of, of society and and, and dualism and, and the things that we're talking about here, uh, let's go just a tad deeper because okay. I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, as a society, uh, I've always been personally much more of an optimist, much more of a contrarian. I believe we live at the greatest time we've ever lived. Yeah. I believe there's less sickness. I believe there's less m- – murder in our country. There's overall, we are progressing in humanity. I believe now there's lots of bad things going on. I won't deny that. However, um, you could argue that we have more technology, more science, you know, all of the things that, that it's a great time to be alive as a human being. Now, having said that, um, how then do we say, how does our faith if you're a Christian and you're 2000 plus years old, how then does that play into that? Do we progress in our faith? You said, you talked about applying scripture in the context of you can't take Romans. That was in a Roman culture then uh, 2000 years ago and apply it in the same way. The truth is the same, but it's applied very very differently. It's not an overlay. There's some that I know listen to this podcast and there's other teachers and pastors that talk about that are uh, more orthodox, more fundamentalist in their faith. There's some that are much more progressive. Uh, where, where does all that spin in your head Ooh. and how, how, how do, how do we, how do we live that out? Because here's what's happening. I believe there's so many people saying, I don't want anything to do with faith or traditional Christianity because it's so irrelevant they they hate people they're denying that our culture is changing and they want to keep things the way it was 50 years ago right there's some validity to that and I think there's some invalidity to that
1: yeah that's right so where do you stand on all that there's some people who don't want to have anything to do with the gospel anything to do with the church because they don't want to have anything to do with the gospel anything to do with the church and that's a fresh new excuse for them to make absolutely so there's there's that you know, so we have to be aware. This has always been, been true. Uh, there's other aspects of this where we'd say, well, you know, we've done a pretty good job of living up to the bad reputation in some ways. Mm-hmm. So that's that's equally problematic. Look, uh, I think this is important for us. We have to be firmly orthodox in our faith. We have to continue to, in, to find ways of Communicating that faith in a changing world, so the core of of the Christian message has never changed, and it can't. Uh, the Which gospel, is the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't going to isn't going to change. Christ crucified, offering his life for for ours, and rising from the dead to be Lord of all. This isn't going to change. Uh, when people do try to change it, they can't change that without undermining it. It's why Paul said, "If I don't care if an angel shows up mm-hmm. and tells you a different gospel, anathema. It's got to be that. Just can't be." So here, here's the unchanging reality within the changing culture in which you live. So, one of the things I think we have to be aware of is that we are standing where we're standing geographically and culturally and so we might be the beneficiaries of advances in technology that other parts of the world don't yet enjoy so yep. they're, they're certainly mm-hmm. you know they might not necessarily say gosh it's the best it's ever been from a technological standpoint i think secondly we have to recognize that technology has pluses and minuses so my smartphone and google help me a whole lot but it could also get in the way of of time spent with other people. If I have some kind of addiction to always looking at the screen and I can't put it down and just spend time in conversation with folks. So there's pluses and minuses to technology. So we need to be aware of the dangers that are associated with them. But let me give you an example. Yeah. Uh, This
0: is a simple one. Um, over the past hundred years, science has pretty much proven that the earth is more than 10,000 years old, right? And there were those that have say, No, that's not true. The Bible yeah. says it's ten thousand years old. Yeah. Now I have no problem, and I don't think you would either, to say, it doesn't matter to me if it's ten thousand years old or a billion years old. God created it and how that time span doesn't really affect it. and I can see science fits beautifully, and I think there should be a, a ebb and flow of science and faith. It should mix you know, faith should prove science and science should prove faith,
1: and vice versa. I know that doesn't always happen, but, but there's an example. Okay. Well, they, Well, okay, so the relationship between faith and science, I think, should be deeply complementary. Absolutely. Though they speak to different aspects of reality. If creation, the created order, created order is a faithful witness to God's nature, then it should be entered into and studied and allowed to speak. And one of the things that science does, whether it's paleontology or, or geology, is allow creation to, or astronomy. Is allow creation to speak if I get images back from deep space I'm seeing the glory of God that's what scripture says I'm seeing I'm seeing a testimony to the glory of God Uh, so so thank God for the scientists who are launching that technology into space that are Mm -hmm. giving me another testimony to the glory of God so there's a compliment uh, Complementary nature there is this kind of false dichotomy that people of science can't be people of faith yeah i don't accept that i don't accept there are many either. examples that demonstrate that that's not the case but when people make statements that undermine the credibility of the scientific enterprise, they're not doing anybody any favors. Mm-hmm. Because some of the very people who would make these kinds of statements undermining the scientific enterprise would then quickly turn to a medical doctor for for surgery, which is based on research, which is based on the very science which they've been undermining in other places. So that's folly. So what we need to be able to do is, is again, this, this common grace of God using people in research using people in the scientific community to give us gifts of understanding and wisdom. Without feeling threatened on our own No, there's no reason to feel threatened by it. It amplifies our understanding of who God is. It amplifies our understanding of what scripture says. It doesn't subvert it, it amplifies.
0: I believe, uh, I know St. Francis said things like this, and and Bonaventure, and, and even guys like Richard Rohr or whoever have said, you know, God wasn't silent for the thousands if not millions of years before we had scripture right and he wasn't sitting on his hands doing nothing um, so you know it's like that passage in Romans where it talks about before there was a Jesus creation was the Bible before there was a Bible the creation yeah, before spoke. the
1: incarnation before 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 God makes himself known in flesh he's revealing his invisible attributes Paul says through those mm. things and he hasn't God stopped has no he hasn't stopped he keeps, he keeps whispering to us in the wind. That's good. And, and, and the rustling you, grass I hear him And pass. would you say through science as well? Absolutely. And through culture
0: and Absolutely. technology
1: and all this Yeah, sure. Things. Well, yeah. And, and, I mean, if you take something like biology and you go down into genetic code, you start thinking about the the that at the base of who we are is language.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, why should that shock us when in the beginning is the word? Mm. So there, there's – I don't – I don't, I'm, I'm not threatened by that. I'm, ast- I'm astonished and made a deeper worshiper by the fact that at the very core of who we are is a word, mm. is language. So all that he does is born of love because he is love and the second person of the Trinity is eternally God. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, and I'm not going to quote this exactly. I'm wildly paraphrasing here. But in essence is saying that all of creation was made in love to be the theater of glory and to be the place where God would fashion a bride, God, the father would fashion Mm -hmm. a bride for God, the son Mm -hmm. and bring her to himself so that everything that God made, he made because in his heart from all eternity, there was Bob Hutchins. That's right. So when he spoke all the cosmos into existence. He did that knowing that you would inhabit it, Mm -hmm. you would, Mm -hmm. and your children would, and he would speak to them through that. But it wasn't just a utility, a a sort of amplifier. It was a demonstration of his majesty and glory and that would prepare us to behold his beauty and long for Mm -hmm. his beauty to, to be part of the fellowship of, of, of the Trinity forever. So I, I don't think you can approach creation as an afterthought
2: Hmm.
1: or something to be, that we look at as with a kind of, um, Coke can mentality where we have the contents and toss the container. That's a very improper view of creation. So the stewarding of the, of the creation and the study of the creation. Think about George Washington Carver, you know, just, you know, all the, Do you believe did. we have a Go much into it. deeper and unity with creation than we, than we give it credit for? Yeah, I, I don't think we're very thoughtful about it. I think part of that's our urbanization, but we're made of dirt. And so, you know, the, the Hebrew term, Adam comes from the term for the soil, Adam, we're, we're one with it. We're. We, our bodies are the, um, uh, tangible aspects of this created order by which we interact with it. Mm. And, and so we, we're very much a part of this creation. Like dust we are
0: created, dust we shall to return. To dust
1: we return. We don't, if to, 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 to damage the creation is to damage ourselves mm. ultimately to destroy creation is ultimately to destroy ourselves. And that's why all the concerns about um, eco- ecology and global warming, and people can have all kinds of debates about the validity of various positions on that. But th- this truth remains: to damage creation is 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 to uh, vandalize God's handiwork, and is to threaten the demolition of humanity mm. because we are part of that created order. That's good. That's good. Last question:
0: uh, value. Value in studying other religions. If, if, if all truth is God's truth, what, what's, I know that you're, you're a scholar and you love to read value in studying other religions.
1: Uh, broadly considered, if we start thinking about the world's, uh, religions, which are inhabited by the largest numbers of people, Mm. Islam. Hinduism, Buddhism, if you don't possess at least some kind of working knowledge of those religions, you are going to have a very difficult time loving your neighbor. Mm. So I do think, first of all, to love our neighbors well in this global civilization in which we live, you need to know at least a little bit about what those faiths hold to, though I, to, I want to qualify this a little bit here, Bob. Most of the Christians I meet don't know what their own faith teaches. Them. <laughs> so I, I, I want my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Hosea, God says in Hosea four six. I, I mean, I want to encourage people to study Scripture mm-hmm. and study their own faith and get deeper there. Sure. But but there is great value in understanding the basics of these other faiths. Um, Comparative religion is is an important study if we're going to love our neighbors well and if we're going to uh, be able to walk into environments like Peter did in the house of Cornelius and say, you know, I had a lot of prejudices about Mm. this and um, here God's been trying to show me something about how he's at work in these other places. So
0: that uh, what you're saying is very utilitarian. At one One, level, at one level, but at a deeper level, what you just said is that if I believe that as a person, as a Christian, uh, that Jesus is the the very essence of God in the in the Trinitarian view, uh, in His death and in burial and resurrection, in His lordship, and yet um, I find when I talk to my Rabbi friend, Mm -hmm. or I read Jewish mystics, or I read Torah or, you know, the Talmud, I find truth and wisdom in that Mm -hmm. from a different perspective. We do have to respect another person's search and their path for God Mm -hmm. because to them, uh, and like you said, we have to know what they believe in order to share what we believe with them. Um, I guess where I'm going with it is it seems to be there's just this many times I have the truth. Everyone else, you know, it's all false. So therefore,
1: I'm not going to spend much time in it. Yeah. Well, and and so those commonalities, some of which we've we've already talked about, are, are things that we we need to be very deeply aware of. We uh, Jesus talked about this. He says, "Don't the Gentiles also love their their children?" Right. So there are human commonalities which we have as image bearers of God, which we have, and those show up in these other uh, religions. Uh, when I've been in London, I've I've sat in a Sikh mm. uh, temple and uh, watched what happens there, uh, listened to what they have to say. I have uh, Muslim relatives and, and, and friends mm. and, uh, and, and uh, I have Jewish friends and I learn a lot from them. When Paul went to Athens. He looked around and even though he was provoked in his heart by the idolatry mm-hmm. so he's not he's not looking at it and going oh yeah this is fine right he's not looking at it like that like oh this is all equally valid but in his address to them he begins with the commonalities right and he says now this one over here this unknown god that's the one i want to talk to you about so rather than scolding he begins with the commonalities. Mm. We're made from one blood, and mm-hmm. we're all longing for God, as some of your own poets have said. He knew their literature, so it, there's there there is this dual aspect of things where we can find ourselves in our hearts provoked by falsehood, which we we're not afraid to call falsehood, right? But deep commonality with other people and, and res- com- respect and respect and right. compassion for us. You don't treat people with disrespect. Right. So as a Christian, you enter into these conversations with deep listening. Uh, I'm going to emphasize something here, which is still flowing out of my time. I think at Auschwitz-Birkenau, which is we have to listen deeply in particular to our Jewish friends. Yes, I agree. There, there is a, a, a Westernization of Jesus and Christianity. I know that that's happened to Judaism too, but but there's a Westernization and commercialization of Jesus and the church and Christianity, which has happened, which um, is not in keeping with the roots of our faith mm. in, in Israel. And it is not we who support the root, as Paul says, it is the root that supports us. And so when we in particular sit with the Old Testament prophets and uh, rabbinic literature, there are important things for us to I hear agree. there. And I, I would especially want to emphasize that for people. But you need to be, look, our area is fill, filling with people from India who have a Hindu background, right. filling with people who have a Muslim background. And if, if you don't know the five pillars of Islam, if, if, if you don't know some of the basics of Hindu and Sikh belief, you. You're, you're just not going to be able to welcome your neighbors very well and love them well and bring them into your home or visit their home. That's good. And it's important for us to be able to do that. That's good.
0: And we shouldn't be scared of
1: that. No, gosh, no, not to be scared one bit. Right. No, to, to go, you know, because, because, um, the opportunity to share Christ with people, to share Jesus with people is so brilliant and wonderful and amazing. God opens these doors for us. Um, if, if, if somebody went to a different country as say, well, I'm going to go over there and be a missionary. They would spend a lot of time getting to know that culture, mm-hmm. getting to know the, the religion and so on. Well, here's what's happened, Bob. God's brought all them here. So what, we don't want to take the time to study right. deeply. There you go. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope that helps. Yes, this
0: is excellent. Uh, we could go on all day, but we only have so much time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And, uh, PastorDavidCassidy.com, yeah. plug your book, come on.
1: Oh yeah, 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 the book's coming out in March, called Indispensable, a, a Guide to Christian Basics for the Seekers. And we get into some the of this The Seekers, stuff. the Skeptics, and the Saved. Yeah, you know, they. it's published by uh, Presbyterian Reformed, and they, they didn't want it to be super heady. They wanted it to be kind of a guidebook. It's 13 short chapters on Christian basic kind of doctrines, but really starting with the person of Jesus and his uniqueness. Um, it's got study questions. I hope it'll be helpful to people due out sometime in March. We'll and the see. name again
0: is indispensable,
1: indispensable in March.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure.